WhatsApps with this DNA. That is what you got coming up next. Ashley Banfield, thank you. We'll be watching. Banfield starts now. Hello, everybody. You know what I call Thursday. I call it Friday Eve because you are just one sleep away from that last day of the week where Fridays don't really matter. I mean, I shouldn't say that out loud, even though I just said it on television and my bosses always watch. Sorry. Um, I'll just give you the day five on the foot thing. Uh, check my Instagram because I got a peg leg thing that I tried out and now, uh, holy dina, it could change everything. I'm not sure. Uh, if you see me with a, a broken nose tomorrow, it means I'm not good at the peg leg walk. But uh, I'm, I'm hobbling around and I'm making it to work. And I have a show for you. I just said to Dan Abrams that I'm watching the clock. Because if you live on the East Coast, it's a little under three hours till midnight. But if you live in Idaho, it's about five hours to midnight. And the people in Idaho are watching that clock probably uh, more voraciously than I am. And the reason is because at the stroke of midnight, there is a deadline that has been the most critical deadline in the Brian Koberger quadruple murder case. Let me repeat that. In the Idaho student's murder, there is a deadline that hits at midnight And that deadline is he gets to see all of the DNA work product against him. He and his attorneys have been just doing one of these. Any minute now, any minute now, please, please give us the file. Let us crack open that file and let me see where there may have been a mistake. Let me see where the prosecutors may have screwed something up. Let me see where that minuscule little piece of DNA on the knife sheath, see it there? See the snap? The teensy-tiny little piece of DNA they found on that snap, on the knife sheath, that the bozo left behind, whoever he may be, that's the DNA that could be the linchpin to this entire case. How do you, how do you screw that up? How do you, how do you screw it up? How do you just, how do you just leave that behind? and then run out with your very sharp knife. How how do you do it? Can I just say I'm really glad you did, whoever you are? I'm really glad you did because when you snapped that open and you ripped that knife out to plunge it into those four kids, you left your little finger marks on the snap. And the prosecution did a lot of work. It's been a year. It's been a whole year. And that deadline is just in a couple of hours where you just know Koberger and his team are going to find any loophole they can, anything, to get that DNA thrown out. Because I am here to tell you, without that DNA, this is a very difficult case. You may not think so. You may think he drove around the house and he had his cell phone pinging. But I can tell you right now, reasonable doubt, that's a tough thing, because reasonable to one juror is unreasonable to another. And without that DNA, if they are able to get it thrown out, if they can find that little mistake anywhere, he could walk. I'm going to dig farther into that in just a moment. Also, uh, I like wrestling. I've been watching it since the 70s because my dad loved it. (laughs) And I thought it was real. But uh, there is this big celebrity. And she was like the biggest celebrity in in the 70s. Look at the pictures. She was huge, huge. 
the sitch. Sunny sitch. So pretty. And you know what? Pretty and great at her job. Tough as nails. I love Sunny. Everybody loved her so much. She was like the most downloaded celebrity of 1996. I think Jenna Jameson took over that mantle a little later on, but she was the most downloaded celebrity on the internet. There she is pointing to it. Uh, Things are different now. Sunny Sitch is sunny side down. Things are not good. Uh, She is headed to prison, and it is a long sentence because she killed a 75-year-old man drinking and driving, and it wasn't the first time. wasn't the second time either. She has had a bad life since these very, very good days. And uh, her fall from grace is not as big as her fall in her appearance. In a moment, I am going to show you the before and after. This is the before. And wait until you see her in the courtroom as she hears she's about to be locked up for a very long time. You will not recognize her. Doesn't matter how good a fan you are. And then I'm going to take you into the small town America life for a moment. In Indiana, there is a town called Arlington that's very, very small, under 300 people. The last census was 300, but it's been shrinking since. And so, you know, in a town that small, you know everybody, and you sure know your neighbors, and you sure do trust them. And there is one family tonight that wishes to God they never trusted their neighbor. Certainly never trusted their neighbor with their 17-year-old daughter, because She worked for that neighbor at his landscaping company. She loved those neighbors next door. She trusted them, and so did her parents. But she's been missing for six months, and they just found her body stuffed in a barrel at that neighbor's yard under the burned-out garage of the neighbor. And during those six months, that neighbor and his wife, oh, they were just so loving to those parents. Oh, she'll come home soon. She'll be home soon. She's probably just run away. Let's just all pray she's home soon. And then the neighbor got arrested. And then they found their daughter's body 100 yards from their own back door. Wait until you hear what the mother of this dead teenager has said on her Facebook about those neighbors next door. And wait until you hear just how close these people were to their neighbors next door. It's just shocking. It is so astounding. I'm going to start here, though, with breaking news, because it is breaking news. I'm looking at the clock. We're under three hours on the East Coast. We're under five hours on the West Coast. A mere matter of hours, and that critical deadline hits in the Brian Koberger murder case. University of Idaho quadruple murder. For lack of a better description, it's the DNA deadline. So what does that mean? Other than kind of absolutely everything in the case. You might remember that just about a month ago, the judge in the case ordered the prosecutors to turn over every single piece of DNA evidence that's critical to this case by December 1st, which is midnight. It's Friday Eve, but it's also December Eve. The judge's name is John Judge, so Judge Judge. I love it. Judge Judge gets to review the DNA evidence that the prosecutors have on Koberger, and then Judge Judge gets to decide what gets turned over to Koberger and Koberger's lawyers. Just a couple hours ago, 7 o'clock Eastern, the judge ordered that all of the forensic information that the prosecution is sharing will be under, you guessed it, a gag order until the trial. Of course Judge Judge would do that. 
but it sure does sound like the transfer is imminent. Going to happen any minute. At this very moment, the prosecutors could be bundling up the files and prepping them for delivery, or maybe the package is already sealed and on its way to court, or maybe it is just one big digital send button. We don't know how they're going to share everything. I think there's fairly a, a lot of it. But what we do know is that Brian Koberger, a former criminology student, is probably sweating bullets right now. Sweating bullets, anticipating what those documents are going to tell him. And I can tell you this, there's not a lot of DNA in this case, but what there is, is as big as Everest in terms of what that guy has to climb. The DNA sample wasn't just found at the crime scene, my friends. It was found on part of the murder weapon, on that clasp of the knife sheath discovered next to Maddie Mogan's body. The FBI uploaded that DNA profile. It was teeny, it was so small. They uploaded it onto public genetic databases and then they built a family tree of related people and wouldn't you know it, it brought them to Koberger's door. So you can understand why the defense is so desperate to get their hands on the work product of the prosecutors. How the investigators did that genealogy testing and whether the database search has followed all the guidelines. Is there a loophole? Is there any loophole that they can exploit to get that evidence tossed out? Because without Brian Koberger's evidence on part of the murder weapon, what actually ties him to this quadruple murder? What? What ties him beyond a reasonable doubt? And there are some other questions too. Like, were there other possible suspects that the FBI might have ignored when they got that hit on the Koberger family tree? Because if Koberger's team can find just one inconsistency or discrepancy or problem, if there is any way that they can chip away at this pesky DNA evidence and get it tossed altogether, Koberger just might have a shot. He could beat the rap on the quadruple murder charge. It is a long shot, let's be honest. But it may just be his best shot. Because explaining to a jury why your car and why your phone are real close around the house at the time that four people were stabbed to death, I know it's hard, but it is a lot easier than explaining how your DNA ended up on the knife sheath right there under one of the murder victims. You think about it. Jurors are like finicky people. I have seen some OJ-like stuff in my life. I'm joined now by couple of people who know a lot about the importance of DNA to a case. Joseph Scott Morgan is a forensic analyst and he is a certified death investigator. He is also the distinguished scholar of applied forensics at Jacksonville State University. And Tracy Walder knows a thing about crime and justice as well. She's a former special agent with the FBI. They're both kind enough to join me on this. I say auspicious evening um, because anything that has to do with the Koberger case and a deadline, I'm, I'm here for it, guys. So let me start with you. Uh, Joseph Scott Morgan, the first thing the defense is going to do when it gets its package, whether it's a FedEx, a brown envelope, a giant stack, uh, a crate, or a big file um, in their inbox, what are they going to look for right off the bat? 
Well, I can tell you this. There will be a person present within that space that they have retained that will have a certain expertise in forensic DNA analysis. They will physically probably be there, I would imagine, going over every bit of this. I don't know how much of this they could share electronically if it's dumped in an electronic package. They might have the person there, you know, to go one-on-one with them, to go through this step-by-step. And, you know, I got to tell you, Ash, uh, thinking about this for, you know, low these many months, uh, what do they have to go on? And it's like you had mentioned, you know, the the knife sheath. Uh, you know, when you begin to think about what was deposited there on that little snap right here, I think probably under the leading edge is the things being actuated. Uh, that whole this whole case rests on that uh, from a physical evidence standpoint. Now, all the other electronic stuff, tracking the car and all that, separate set here. But what we're talking about is the DNA and the deposition of it. And, you know, they're going to have somebody there uh, right on their hip to walk them, walk them through every piece of this evidence. You know, Tracy, I have heard people say that the only way this guy is not going down for these four murders is if they can find something, anything to get that DNA tossed. So I'm going to you take off your law enforcement hat for a hot minute and tell me where there might be a pitfall that they can mine. And I don't think there is, but just where there could be. Well, I agree with you. I don't think that there's necessarily a pitfall, but in kind of brainstorming what could be potentially perceived as one is early on that DNA evidence was actually sent to the state and then the state sent it to a lab in Texas. The lab then built a profile and then the FBI stepped in and that the FBI used that profile that was built by the lab to then do their genetic comparisons. So I think if there's any kind of, I guess, pitfall, although again, I don't think that there is one, I think this is really what they're going to, to hone in on. This is just my hypothesis, but to me, that sounds like really what they're going to focus on. And I think they're also going to look at how the FBI handled the evidence in their chain of evidence sheets that come back. I think they're really going to do a very, very deep look at that as well. That is my next question. So, Joe, I'm going to get you to field this one because DNA, when we first started to, you know, it became common parlance through OJ in the 90s. And then sort of in the 2000s, we all thought that if you have DNA, you got them. It's just foolproof. And then people started to realize that DNA is only as good as the people who handle it. So what Tracy said is that chain of custody. Tell me where something could have gone sideways in the chain of custody with the teensy tiny sample that they got off that knife sheath, Joe. Yeah, it's it's going to come down to operator error, as they used to say, relative to computers. It, 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 the devil is in the details with the steps that they apply. Who's in the chain relative to accountability for this evidence? Who's How many hands did this pass through? Obviously, when we begin to think about the sheath itself, you have any number of players that are at the scene. Is there accountability directly linking back to the individual that recovered that sheath? How many hands did it pass from through the, uh, from the scene back to the lab where they were able to actually harvest this sample of DNA? And then you think about the FBI that was involved in it in this lab down in Texas. If there's anywhere they're going to poke holes in this, it's not necessarily going to be the science. Ash, it's going to be 
human error along the way. And they are going to look at this with an incredibly intense light shining on it, they being the defense, because any kind of chink in the armor here could be doomsday for them. Yes, it's always about the hand. I remember covering a case, Tracy, where there was an issue with the lab, and the lab had a sample uh, from the suspect, and it was right up next to other samples. And so, you know, the, the, the snafu came with the possibility of contamination within the lab. And it's not the only case I've worked on. There was a Boston uh, lab that was, you know, rife with this kind of problem. So, you know, knowing that that is a possibility and just hoping that no Koberger evidence was ever in the same state as this little tiny piece of DNA. Talk to me about the significance, Tracy, of the, the size of the DNA sample, because, you know, sometimes bigger is better. And, and the smaller the size of the DNA, the bigger the argument for defense. Well, I, I completely agree with you. Sometimes bigger is better. And, you know, just in terms of the chain of custody, going back to that really quickly, one of the things that used to tell us at the FBI is you better not see a lot of agents' names on that chain of custody form because the more hands it goes through, it really degrades it. And I think that also includes a DNA sample, especially a really small DNA sample that's passing through multiple labs, multiple transit points. And I really think that there could have been a chance of contamination at really any one of those points. Because we have to remember, there was also multiple law enforcement agencies that were handling this piece of evidence. It wasn't just controlled by the FBI or just controlled by Idaho State Police. And I think that's going to potentially lead, if anything, although I don't think it was, to them using kind of an argument that it could have been contaminated. Joe, bounce off this idea of size matters. Um, listen, there's so little that we know about this case under the gag. We've learned next to nothing. But we did hear early on that this is a very, very small sample of DNA that was found under that snap. Um, you know, I, I don't get it. I just thought if you have a sample, you have a sample. What, what's the problem with a small sample when you're talking about something as small as DNA anyway? Yeah, one of the things that I thought about, and I, I purchased this, the knife itself, many months ago. Uh, and, you know, I took a look at the sheath, just kind of playing around with it and thinking about an individual that would possess this and kind of actuate the snap on it back and forth. I'm thinking that perhaps the sample that they have off of this thing might very well be touch DNA, which is going to be an incomplete sample to begin with. So, Touch DNA arises from dead skin cells, right? And so you only have a partial uh, relative to the strand. So it's even going to make it more fragile, perhaps, if you're actuating this thing. Just imagine somebody sitting in a chair in front of a television playing with this thing, kind of clipping it back and forth. Skin cells are going to come off of the thumb or the finger or however it's being actuated, and that's going to be left behind. This is not like a droplet of blood or, say, some other bodily fluid that's going to be DNA-rich. You're going to have a compromised sa sample to begin with. That's what makes this so very fragile. Mm. Well, he is going to be thrilled um, with what he sees because it will be a minefield uh, for the prosecution. That's exactly what he and his attorneys are going to look for. Teeny tiny sample, chain of custody, anything they can do uh, to, to get that thrown out because it is the linchpin in the case. Joseph Scott Morgan, Tracy Welder, great to see you both. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank you. Still to come tonight, one of the biggest WWE stars of all time is headed to prison for a long time. 
for killing a man while driving drunk. Tammy Sunny Sitch and her colossal fall from stardom is shocking her fans, mostly because of how she appeared in the courtroom. The most downloaded celebrity of 1996 is all but unrecognizable today. We have the before and the unfortunate after next. There was once a time she was one of the biggest names in wrestling. The original WWE diva with a place in the Hall of Fame and a place in internet history. That there is Tamara Sitch. She went by the wrestling name Sunny Sitch. And way, way, way back in 1996, she was AOL's most downloaded celebrity. Remember AOL? It is not what it used to be. And neither, I'm sorry to say, is Sunny Sitch. Because this is Sunny Sitch today. Monday, actually. This was her walking into a courtroom to face a Florida judge and receive a 17-year prison sentence for crashing into a car while driving drunk. And that car, sadly, had a 75-year-old man in it, and he was killed. And when I say drunk, I mean hammered. Her blood alcohol level was four times the legal limit. It happened in May of last year, just four months after Sitch got out of prison for another DUI. Yes, four months after she got out of prison for another DUI, she did this. And can I tell you, even that other one was not her first one. So no doubt, prosecutors call her a, quote, danger to society. But Sitch's lawyers say she has mental health issues and boyfriends who abused her. And if you are wondering... What Sonny Sitch had to say to the victim's family, because they were right there in court, too. Here you go. When I sit along thinking about what I did to the Lasker family that tragic day, from a stupid decision, I feel the regret and remorse deep inside my soul. So she was sorry. It doesn't bring back a 75-year-old man. I want to bring in Mark Garagos, criminal defense attorney and co-host of the Reasonable Doubt podcast with Adam Carolla. Garagos, you know, she didn't get... Welcome, by the way. It's nice to see you. Um, She didn't get the 26 years. And the family wanted her to get the 26 years. Why didn't she get the max 26 years? You know, there's... uh, These cases are interesting, and I've uh, defended them, and, uh, and it's very, very difficult for a lot of people to understand that maybe 30 years ago, Ashley, well before you were an adult, that these kinds of cases, usually people, you get in a traffic accident with a DUI, kill somebody, and not much happened. There was a sea change, not the least of which was because of Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. And and when I say a sea change, I mean astronomical to the point where in California, for instance, you get charged with murder now if you, um, on DUI that involved death, and that's a murder, what's called an implied malice murder. 
But there still is a segment or segments of society that think, and I've seen lawyers who will say, I'll defend a drunk driver. They would never defend a murderer, an accused murderer. There is a distinction in a lot of people's minds. And I think that permeates the criminal justice system still in certain areas. And here, you know, I think part of it is this idea that nobody gets up in the morning and thinks generally when you're a um, somebody who is convicted of drunk driving with these horrific uh, consequences. Nobody gets up and says, I'm going to go out and kill somebody. But if you get so, what was your term, hammered or wasted, that you then end up hurting or killing somebody, uh, you're going to suffer, unlike when I first started practicing 40 years ago, you're going to suffer real consequences now. Yeah, well, and she's driving with a suspended license. This is her fourth DUI in in 10 years. I I actually want to bring in another celebrity and I say celebrity because Sunny Sitch was a big celebrity, but, you know, she's just she's had a really hard life. And you can see how hard, you know, jail and prison has been on her. Her before and after is, you know, astounding. It's like Lori Vallow. She just went from 60 to zero. Um, Tiffany Haddish, second DUI in two years. And it doesn't seem like she's taking it very seriously. And I say that because um she did this in January of 2022, and she went on the Jimmy Fallon show, and she made the following joke about being arrested for DUI. I want to play it for you. Take a look. Want to talk about it or no? Well, I can say this, Jimmy. Okay. I've been praying to God to send me a new man, a good man. <laughs> and um, God went ahead and sent me four in uniform. So, that, you know, a lot of people laughed. But then when this just happened over Thanksgiving, her second DUI, uh, she actually made the same joke on the stage at the Laugh Factory. This is TMZ Audio. Take a listen. I pray to God because there be a man with a job, a woman, preferably in a uniform. God answered my prayers. Garagos, I don't know if she, you know, has such a problem she can't even keep her joke straight. But, you know, joking about DUI at this point, maybe not the best idea. Good people make mistakes. But at what point do the rest of us have to sort of, you know, be willing to be their their victims um, because they're likable? I, I've always made the argument, I suppose, that on a DUI that uh, that the first time uh, you should it shouldn't be as draconian. The second time. You really, especially now in today's day and age, remember before there was a Lyft, before there was an Uber, uh, I remember vividly people, clients in my office saying, I can't can't lose my license in Los Angeles. How can I drive? I can't get around, blah, blah, blah. Well, you don't have that issue anymore. I I remember as recently as 15 years ago, people saying, I have to hire somebody to drive me because otherwise I lose my job. Well, that's not an issue anymore. Mm-hmm. I always kind of, I have a, a lot more sympathy for the first uh, and sometimes the second. After that, obviously you've got an issue. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Two syllables, Uber. And you know, when you got that much money, you can afford it. Uh, Garagos, as always, love seeing you. Thank you for being on, appreciate it. Welcome back, good to see you. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Mark Garagos, one of my faves. He'll be back early and often. Coming up next, my exclusive interview with a family suffering an unimaginable loss, but finally getting something that not a lot of families get in their position, a measure of justice. 
Linda Fricke died violently, horribly, at the hands of teenage carjackers who dragged her to her death. They are paying a very big price for their crimes, but is it enough of a price? I'll ask Linda's loved ones next. This is um, a kind of a tough case to talk about, and it's going to be a tough case to hear about, too, so please consider yourself warned. Linda Fricke was behind the wheel of a car in New Orleans when four teenagers jumped in and drove off. She was carjacked. It does happen a lot, sorry to say. It happens in every city, but usually the driver gets out, jumps out, or is forced out. But Linda got tangled up in her seatbelt. And the carjackers didn't care. They just kept going. Linda was dragged 700 feet until her arm was severed, which is why I can't show you that video. She did not survive this horrible crime. Linda Fricke was 73 years old. She was a grandmother who was looking forward to retirement. The DA called this the most violent carjacking he's ever seen. And in the year and a half since, three of the kids, all girls, pleaded guilty as juveniles to attempted manslaughter. I also can't show you their faces because of their ages. Juveniles. But all three got 20-year prison sentences and a plea deal. 20 years. The fourth teenager, different story. I can show you his face because he's 18 years old. His name is John Honoré. He went to trial decided against the plea offer and went to trial as an adult. And on Monday, jury of his peers found him guilty. And the charge was second-degree murder. Honoré was the driver who allegedly beat Linda Fricke viciously and then dragged her to her death. And he could face life in prison when he's sentenced. Joining me now for this exclusive interview is Linda's younger sister, Jenny Lynn Griffin, and Linda's sister-in-law, Kathy Richard. Um, thank you to both of you for, for being with me tonight, and I am so sorry for what you and your family have, have gone through. If I could start with you, Ginny Lynn, is there any sense of relief or justice in hearing uh, the verdicts and the sentences for the three girls, 20 years each? Yes, there was a relief. Um, I was saddened. They were young girls. They were all there. They, all, they got in the car. They were following their friends. Um, they had got, they got 20 years, but they did it. They chose it. They didn't try to stop John Honoré in any way. They all got in the car, which would be felony, a felony of carjacking anyway. Um, you know, they, so, they didn't do anything to stop him. And, and Kathy, there is still a sentencing that you are awaiting for John Honoré. He chose against the plea deal. Uh, he was convicted, second degree murder. What are you hoping the sentence will be for him? Well, we're pretty sure that it's a mandatory life sentence with 25 years before possibility of parole. That is a long time uh, for an 18-year-old. Um, it, it's, uh, it's hard to fathom what, you know, what, what's going through his mind as he awaits hearing what the judge has to say. Jenny Lynn, you had a chance to speak face-to-face with the parents of the three girls. Can you tell me about that? I 
actually only saw one. She said she was sorry, and I told her I was sorry too. But it was, it was a choice. It was a choice she made, and unfortunately, the consequences followed her, and she has to serve her time now. What was it like for you, though? Was it was it painful to to be face to face with those parents? I mean, obviously, they're they're brokenhearted as well, losing uh, losing their children. You know, for for twenty years. Right. Um, it, it, it was, in a sense, but like I said, it was, it was a sad thing because they are losing uh, their children. And, and as Kathy said, they're losing their sister time for the next 20 years. They not only hurt us, they hurt their, grandma, they hurt their grandmother as well as hurting Linda's grandchildren. So um, it, it really was a sad time. She was trying to apologize, and I just... Uh, told her that, you know, she said she was sorry, and I said I was sorry too, but, you know, unfortunately, like I said, they did it, and she knows they did it, and, um, you know, I really felt like the girls were more, the two from the back seat were more apologetic than anybody. So, Kathy, John was the driver. Jan John was really the, the, the most aggressive part of this entire crime that, that took Linda. Um, he wrote a letter to, to your family. It's, uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's hard to read. I mean, it almost looks like it's written by a, a grade schooler. It says things along the lines of, I pray for you every day, and I'm, I'm so sorry, and I apologize. All those kinds of words that I imagine someone would want to hear. But what was it like for you to, to see this letter, read this letter? Was there anything about it um, that, that brought you any solace at all? No, that letter is not John Honore. He has a long list of violent crimes. All during the trial, all the, the pre-trial meetings in, at court, he sat there, slept, twirled his hair. There was times when the, the judge or the bailiffs had to tell him, stand up. He had no respect for the court, just... Is just not a remorseful person. And no. How do you apologize for something so horrific? He didn't only, before he dragged her, he beat her, he stomped her, he maced her. He didn't give her a chance to get out the car. He went up to the car and attacked her. And he stomped her. And again, I mean, you know, thinking about it. She's in her 70s, so it's just a, it's just such an appalling crime every way you look at it. I am so thankful that you both took the time to be here tonight. Uh, Kathy Richard and Ginny Lynn Griffin, thank you so much. And again, our, our prayers go out to you and your family as you heal after this horrible ordeal. Thank you again. Thank, thank you. you so much. And we will see what justice looks like uh, when that final sentence comes down for John Honoré. Still to come, a major debate in a dis or major update rather in a disturbing case that we told you about last night. A girl from small town Indiana goes missing back in June. Six months later, she's finally found, dead and stuffed in a barrel, just a hundred yards from her own back door. The next door neighbor has now officially been charged with murder. And guess what he and his wife said to the girl's mom during that whole six months that that teen was missing? You'll find out next.
If you were with us last night, you will know the name Valerie Tyndall. She's that 17-year-old who disappeared almost six months ago from the tiny little town of Arlington, Indiana. It's just outside Indianapolis. And when I say tiny, I mean itty-bitty. It's like fewer than 300 people in that town. Valerie's body was found on Tuesday. She was stuffed in a barrel, and that barrel was buried under rubble at her next-door neighbor's house in the backyard. If you're wondering how far away from the home that neighbor is, how far away from Valerie's home that barrel was found, less than 100 yards. And today the coroner officially identified Valerie's body. But they can't determine the cause and manner of death yet, likely because that teenager's been in the barrel for about six months, and many of those months were summer. And the reason I say that is because the night that Valerie disappeared, the neighbor was up really, really late, like 2 a.m., burning down his own garage. How weird is that? The debris that was left behind, that's where Valerie's body was found buried, in that, in that barrel, under the burn garage. DA officially bought the charges against the neighbor. He's 59 years old. His name is Patrick Scott. He was also Valerie's boss at a lawn care business. Patrick Scott is charged tonight with murder and obstruction of justice and false informing to a law enforcement officer. And I might add, it's about time He'd been on their radar almost from the get-go for reasons that seemed really obvious to the rest of us. He was the last person to see Valerie alive. He allegedly kept changing his story, hence the false informing charge. And then he had that whole bizarre bonfire, 2 a.m., burning down the garage. Weird. Valerie's mother, Sheena Sandifer, is, as you can probably imagine, livid. She says her family had been so friendly with the Scott family next door. The Scots had even tried to reassure them that Valerie probably just ran away and would come home when she was ready. Sheena posted Scott's mugshot on her Facebook page and wrote, here's the sick F who took our baby girl from us. She said Valerie, quote, loved him and his family and, quote, absolutely trusted him. She said, quote, how the hell could you come in my yard and look us in the eyes and act like our friends? Joining me now is Caitlin Becker. She's senior reporter for the Daily Mail. This is a tiny town, like 300, I mean, give or take, it's under 300. And they were more than just neighbors, weren't they? They were, Ashley. So many people out there don't even know their neighbors' names. But in this small community, the neighbors were very close. Valerie was good friends with Scott's granddaughter. As you said earlier, she worked for him in the summers for his landscaping business, her mother said that she felt like he was a member of the family, which just makes these charges against him even more sickening. And so Sheena Sandifer, Valerie's mom, posted a lot more questions uh, on that Facebook page. What else did she write? Oh, Ashley, she wants to know what I think everyone wants to know and what any grieving parent would want to know. Why? When did it happen? How did it happen? Did her daughter suffer? I mean, we know now that she was discovered in this barrel. We don't know how long she had been deceased. Like you said, it could have been a period of six months. It could have been longer than that. So there are a lot of unanswered questions. And her mother just ultimately wants to know why. And mom thinks that the family knew a lot more. Um, tell me about that. She does, Ashley. First and foremost, I would say that Sheena is 
pretty confident that this is the person responsible for her daughter's murder. And like we said, we don't actually have a cause or manner of death yet, but there is a murder charge. And in several social media posts and in interviews with the media, Sheena has said that she believes that the wife, his wife helped maybe bury the body and that the grandson could have been involved in some way, perhaps cleaning out the car or the truck that would have been involved in this alleged crime. And to be clear, she doesn't have any proof of this, but these are the things that she's going out publicly saying about this family that this was right next door, a hundred yards right under her nose. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, the fact that they were over there uh, reassuring the family um, she'll come back. She's probably just a runaway that just sort of turns my stomach. And I can't imagine what what Sheena's going through. This is a small town people talk. So I'm sure that this is just the tip of the iceberg for stories that'll come out. Uh, Caitlin Becker, as always, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ashley. Still ahead tonight, the doomsday cult mom hits the open road. And that may sound odd for someone serving three life sentences. But Lori Vallow has gone south for the winter. She arrived in Arizona this morning and it is no holiday. She has to stand trial again. This time, it's conspiracy to murder her fourth husband, the one before, Chad Daybell. She's in a whole new jail, and you know what that means, everybody. We get a whole new mugshot. Can you say jail, hair, and makeup? It is next. Lori Vallow has officially left the building. The convicted child killer was extradited from Idaho to Arizona. She left on Wednesday morning, was driven 18 hours south. Hope she enjoyed the view on the drive because that's about the only time she's going to see anything outside of a prison cell. She, uh, she's in Phoenix to face two charges, conspiracy to commit murder for her estranged husband, Charles Vallow, and the attempted murder of her niece's estranged husband. Pro tip, do not be an estranged husband around Lori Vallow. Maricopa Sheriff says a four-person team transported Lori by car. Says she was very chatty, talked up a storm during the 18-hour ride. And she arrived at the Estrella Jail in Phoenix with lights and cameras, and it looked like uh, Lori did her own hair, complete with some face-framing highlights. Don't forget, she was once a hairstylist and a beauty queen. Commissary must have had some options, I'm just saying. Uh, We have her new mugshot, and it looks like she did some prep work for it. Unlike the old mugshot, the Heidi the Hills mugshot she took back in May. Um, and uh, Lori's newest mugshot is, is uh, well, it's something to